Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Radio Show. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and we're recording a podcast on Friday 24th of January. New radio show guest, Brett. Welcome, Brett. Hello. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where you, who, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Absolutely. My name's uh, Brett Zerber. I am from the great old US of A. Uh, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I've been in the ITAM industry for over a decade now. Um, started with, didn't even know what ITAM was. I had to Google it at one point. I was kind of thrown to the wolves with IBM. And I spent about seven years at IBM. Um, Left IBM for a startup called LegalZoom.com. I was with them for a while, and now I work for a uh, mid-sized bank in Oklahoma, um, and uh, I am their software asset manager, vice president there at the bank. Dealt with data center and international call center, SAM, HAM, uh, config management, a little bit of everything. I'm happy to be here, and we're happy to have you. And, and finally, Brett. Before we move on to the, the radio show, what do you do when you're not doing ITAM? Um, I'm usually raising my gaggle of children. I've got uh, I've got six kids with my wonderful wife who works a lot harder than I do. Um, I get to go to work every day. And uh, classic Volkswagens are my, my second passion. I might have six kids, but I have one baby, and that's a uh, 1973 Volkswagen Super Beetle convertible. Um, nice. My, my new toy. So um, that, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Cool. Well, welcome to the radio show. Thank you. So, folks, industry news for January. Oh. IBM announcement around Windows Server. What's the news there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is uh, it's quite some serious implications in the industry um, globally. This is uh, IBM's announcement um, that uh, now that Windows Server 2008 R2 is um, out of extended support for Microsoft, uh, they will no longer support it, IBM, as, a, as an eligible virtualization or, or as a platform within eligible virtualization technology for the purposes of subcapacity licensing. So organizations that are continuing to use it within their virtual environments uh, and benefit from IBM subcapacity licensing are now find, going to find themselves having to pay for full capacity licensing in those environments, which could be a significant cost increase. Um, so I think I think that's a potentially troubling uh, development for, for particularly major enterprises who are using IBM software. Um, you know, because they're going to see their costs go up significantly. How, um, how prevalent? How prevalent do you think that is? It's quite an old platform, isn't it? Lots. Well, yeah, you say that, I, almost every client I work with is still using uh, that oper- yeah, operating system to some degree. I've, I've, seen, I've seen clients still using Windows Server 2003 as well. So um, I, I think it's a major, a major issue because look at the desktop stuff as well. So obviously, you know, Windows 7 has just gone out of extended support as well. Um, how many organizations around the world are still using Windows 7 as their core desktop operating system? I think it's about 25% of... Um, all machines are still Windows 7, aren't they? Yeah. But in, in, ter- in terms of the, the implications of IBM, I mean, obviously, lots of uh, major enterprises are significant IBM houses, particularly, I um, can't speak for the United States, I'm sure Brett will, have, will be able to contribute on that score, but certainly UK, lots and lots of financial houses are dependent on IBM software. Um, so if they've got Windows Server 2008 R2, operating system in their virtual environments, they're going to have to start thinking about either getting off it or they're going to face a major cost increase on their IBM licensing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, IBM is a major player in the US and around the world. And Server 2008, I mean, yeah, it's been around for a while, but you know, it's still out there and it's going to be out there for years, right? So the IBM running on those OSs, um, the subcapacity licensing, it's got to be evaluated, right? And the full capacity 
impact if you don't get off of 2008 has to be addressed. And that they don't, you have to identify all those systems and leverage Island to figure out what the cost is going to be and then try to come up with a strategy to get off of it in 180 days. Um, I think it's May, sometime in May, maybe uh, early April. Uh, Mid-July, actually. Mid-July. Oh, even better. Thank That's God. Yeah, it's a couple of months. That makes all the difference. That's way better than May. Um, <laughs> is there, just before we go on, is there any technical reason driving this change? Is no. there any reason why you would not, after 180 days, not be able to deploy and run IBM on Windows 8? Uh, sorry, Windows 7 2008, apart from the fact that it's suddenly got a load more expensive. Technically, no, not, not that uh, I'm aware of. I think, I mean, IBM are doing this for, for two reasons, obviously, aren't they? Firstly, um, they obviously want to get away from supporting their own applications on that platform on Windows Server 2008 because, obviously, the older the, the support gets and the more backdated versions, the more expensive it becomes to deliver that support. And obviously, it's a, it's a revenue driver as well because if they can suddenly force organisations to go from sub-capacity to full-capacity licensing for those platforms, then that's that's a, a money spinner for them. Um, I'm just just thinking out loud, and perhaps anyone can jump in here. Have we ever covered the difference between full-cap and sub-cap licensing on on the Jargon Buster at all? Don't think so. I'm going to take the stunt silences and no. Yeah, this, this might be an opportune time to just briefly, because we may well have listeners on this on this podcast who aren't aware of the differences and who may be having to manage IBMs. Okay, so I'll, I'll try and keep this relatively brief. So the difference between the two um, in a virtualized environment. So, for example, VMware vSphere platform, um, full capacity licensing is where you have to license all of the physical cores within that platform. So if you have a cluster of uh, vSphere hosts um, and you have one virtual machine running IBM software, um, then you have to license the entire VMware cluster. That's full capacity. Subcapacity is where you would only actually have to license the virtual cores on the virtual machine that's running the software. So a significant difference in the number of cores potentially. To be able to do subcapacity licensing, there are a handful of contractual terms you, you, with which you must comply. So um, you have to be running a, a eligible IBM program, so it's a program that can actually be measured in this way, normally licensed by PVUs. Uh, you have to be running it uh, with eligible um, processor technology. Um, you have to be running it in an eligible virtualize, virtualization platform. Um, and this is where the Windows Server 2008 R2 comes in, because when IBM are talking about their eligible platforms, they're obviously including supported operating systems within that. So it's not just about what your virtualization technology is, it's, a, it's about the operating system as well. And then the last of those terms is that you have to be running IBM's licensed metric tool. So if you are currently running Windows Server 2008 R2 in uh, a VMware virtualized platform and you're benefiting from subcapacity licensing, uh, you have to be offered that operating system within six months or you're going to be paying for full capacity licensing for uh, for those environments where you've got uh, that operating system. Um, Barry, just as a sort of a thought experiment, almost, could, could you sort of ring fence those platforms on, a, say, on, on say, a separate cluster, like, like you might do for, say, building a SQL cluster, w would that get around this? Yeah, I mean, if this was me advising a client um, and it was not possible for them to get off that operating system, that would be, uh, my advice would be to actually build a separate uh, VMware cluster, pack all of your Windows Server 2008 R2 VMs running IBM software onto that cluster and then just license it at full capacity, yeah. or potentially even build a DRS group. Um, Mm. IBM do actually recognize VMware's DRS group technology, unlike Oracle. Um, and I've, I've successfully defended um, IBM audits where that's been an issue as well. So if you yeah. put a DRS group in, you can just license the physical cores within that group. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you, you, I, think, I think you can get away with that. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have to, I have to agree with others. It's, no, this, is, this will be a big issue because oh, wait, R2... It's, that's kind of prime time, big growth around that. There was a very, very successful product for Microsoft, much like Windows 7, wasn't it? So there's a lot of installed base out there. 
Um, yeah. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, would have been running back-end systems, critical systems. Um, yes, you shouldn't be running on unsupported software, but the reality is that you will be. Um, it was certainly the case. Wherever I've looked, there's always been things that often, like retail, for example, often ends up being on old versions and, and so on. Um, well, with, with banks, it's very much the regulatory um, can force you to be working with older systems. I mean, if you have a system that, or a piece of software that won't run on anything other than 2003 or 2008, yeah. unless you need to still get the data from that system for regulatory purposes, you are forced to continue to use those systems until the seven-year period is over. So there are lots of different reasons why people end up forced into that. I mean, I met the, the, the going to DRS or actually going to build in your own cluster and moving everything onto it, is probably the easier solution, even though that costs a lot of time, effort, and money to do as well. I suppose businesses need to weigh up, you know, can we actually move from 2008 to a more supported system 2012 or something like that, rather than actually building out a new cluster because the cost may be exactly the same as doing that upgrade. So it's a, it's a, a lot of work needs to be done on that for people. It's not just yeah. about cost either, though. It's about the risk, isn't it? I mean, upgrading the operating system can be quite risky too. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's not just a it's not just a licensing decision at all. There's a lot more to it. On a similar vein, uh, industry news: Microsoft support cost German government a significant amount of money. It's been reported that um, German government is paying around eight hundred thousand euros to keep their existing Windows Seven machines alive. Um, anyone else got experience of this? Very expensive to keep this very old operating system ticking over. Similar sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, not so much on the OS, but I did try to buy SQL Server extended support when that was available as a product um, um, because it was running retail systems that needed to be on, on under support, but we couldn't move move off them. Um, as it was, that product got re removed before before I could purchase it, but we would have done. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's fearsomely expensive. I, I, you know, it, I think the cost doubles every year you stay on it, from what I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. So, yeah. I mean, what we've been talking about with Microsoft's um, put a number of different products is, you know, this year may be palatable, next year very much less palatable, and then the third year, literally, you're buying three licenses. You may as well buy three licenses for the, the price that you're paying for the extended support. Hmm. It's, it, it becomes a Massively expensive. Yeah, from from what I understand with the Windows Seven and, and the way it, the extended support works, you know, it, it's by device running that operating system. But when VDI or virtual desktop uh, infrastructure is, is involved, you're not necessarily licensing licensing the virtual desktop itself. You're licensing the physical system accessing that virtual yeah. desktop. So, so you don't have two, three, four, five different Windows Ten boxes accessing a Windows 7 VDI, you're actually purchasing 10 extended support um, licenses for those Windows 10 physical systems accessing a single Windows 7 virtual machine or virtual desktop. So so I'm sort of interested from the from the German government's perspective, you know, are, are the 30 plus thousand uh, unique devices that they'd be licensing at that dollar now all laptops and desktops and user devices or is there some mix of virtual infrastructure in place that that's causing that that very large uh extended support bill well i think it's a bit of vice versa as well because you know you could have ten thousand people but you've only got five thousand devices because you work in ships so you're only paying for five thousand device licenses even though even though in the theory you could have got it through your e5s because e5s would give you one year worth of the um, Windows 7 uh, ESU, um, but of course you could be paying 10,000 E5 licenses, do you know what I mean? Um, so there, there were various different mechanisms that Microsoft was trying to use to, to kind of avoid this, but I don't think the take upon them has been extremely large. You know, Jim um, government, as I've you're saying, haven't taken that into account. More industry news. Oracle have uh, reportedly taken Java Direct, so I think they, is it January 2019 they monetized Java, uh, yeah. certain versions of Java, and now they're stating on the Oracle website that um, you basically can't purchase that for resale via Oracle. So I'm, I'm guessing 
how much do partners make for Oracle's reselling Oracle? Maybe 20, 30, 40% margin? And Oracle are basically taking that direct, presumably because they're surfacing a lot of old Java that needs licensing. Yeah, and I'm sure it's an opportunity for them to um, ask for uh, environment data and, um, you know, to, 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 you know, to size whatever purchase you're making and you're getting direct with them. So it's, um, you know, they're going to have a bit more information than, than they would do if you're going through a reseller. So um, step carefully, I would say. Um, I would like to know, you know, how long do we reckon John has got to live now that Oracle have monetized it? Uh, probably as long as Windows Server 2003 is living, it's <laughs> embedded everywhere. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Added to that, I think it'd be interesting to see the outcome of the Oracle Google um, Java API lawsuit, which is currently in the US Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a big story this year. Um, that's going to be one of the massive stories of this year, I think. Um, particularly if Google lets you win it. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, that, that's that's fundamental to uh, to the future of how IT ecosystems work. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's bad enough that Oracle have uh, obviously last year have announced monetized it as we've just been discussing. But then if uh, if you're then going to get problems with uh, trying to program through APIs and have to pay for that right as well, I think wholesale will see will see people moving away from Java and looking for new ways to develop and. Um, you know, bring applications forward into production environments then away from Java completely. Maybe this will be the bit that forces ServiceNow to move away from it and actually use a, a proper programming language. Yeah, it's it, it's been long predicted. I, you know, if you, if you think back to when Oracle got their mitts on Java, um, there was a huge amount of talk, particularly in the open source community, about this is the end of Java and this is going to be terrible. And it's taken a while, but they finally got there, and, and it is as bad as they said. Another bit of industry news, well, this is really from the consumer space, but I thought it was relevant for our conversation. Um, I think it has, I think we'll see more of this in the enterprise space. It, this is news that broke, I think it was yesterday or today, um, Sonos devices, which are, um, what's the best way of describing Sonos devices? They're like uh, home speaker systems aren't they so you can yeah smart you can, speakers home speakers you yeah. listen to your music in your front room or your kitchen and they all talk to each other and uh, smart speakers so so i think the the gist of the story is there was an update done over the wire which basically turned those sonos devices of a certain age into bricks completely useless i think it was even more than just turning them into bricks i think it actually paralyzed the entire subsystem that it was sitting on so if you had different systems and so multiple speakers, then all the speakers that were connected to that bricked system, that bricked speaker also just refused to work. I think that's what I read in the news. Yeah, from from what I understand, it was a it was a planned support stop, if you will, for May, meaning they were going to stop supporting uh, certain numbers of legacy systems or older devices that they had sold uh, beginning in May and basically stating that, that hey, we're going to stop updating these. Well, the way Sonos works, as I understand it, is, is everything that you have networked, all the smart speakers within your, your residence or your, your office or what have you, um, they all run the same software so that they can all run offer the same features and talk to each other and whatnot. So if you have a mix of legacy devices and newer devices and they stop supporting those legacy ones, they all stop working, right? Just like Kylie kind of mentioned. And and that obviously caused a massive uproar from, from the Sonos uh, uh, faithful. And the company uh, responded, actually. I, I saw something, a response from the CEO um, that, that basically said, hey, we're sorry. Right, we, we our announcement was not uh, very detailed. We are not looking to brick everyone's uh, equipment. We understand the investment you've made, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, that that they're looking to source a solution that that allows your older devices to stay on one firmware, if you will, and your newer devices to be on a separate firmware. Um, we'll still do bug patches and all this other stuff. Basically, throwing themselves on their own sword, admitting their communication. The communication faults and uh, trying to to make amends. Um, 
which which I give him credit for. Uh, you know, uh, it, it takes a it takes a certain amount of uh, of God's humility to to admit to admit to the millions that uh, you screwed up, right? And, and I think this is exactly what it is. It's a communication problem. It's much like Apple and the iPhone six battery issue um, from a couple of years ago. <laughs> Sonos have got a very um, zealous uh, fan base, much like Apple. You know, it's uh, it's much more than a speaker to these people. It's in, it's in their homes for a start, and it's controlling music. All of these things are important. And if you mess about with that and you don't communicate it properly, then you do get a backlash. And um, and, and that's what's really happened in this case. I mean, I actually have a degree of sympathy with them because, you, I mean, I've got old Android tablets that probably stuck on jelly bean um uh really old os um and it isn't usable with modern applications so if you you can't have your ecosystem held back by low power hardware if you, if you think about um how apple do um software updates for ipads and and, and macs after a certain point in time they, they won't push out the operating system update to a mac because the mac can't handle it no it's not powerful enough so i can see why they've done it they've just gone about it badly and not communicated right and that's what's I think there's a couple of things here. First of all is resilience. So what so so part of the issue of what they've done is that they've not allow they've not written software in a way that allows some speakers to be updated but others not. Mm. So the moment one of those speakers gets to the point where it cannot receive updates, all of the speakers, no matter how new or old they are, just become bricks, they're not going to work. And that's a resilience thing, isn't it? You know, they've not included in their design a way of just saying, okay, this system's not going to be updated, but we're still going to send updates to the rest of the speakers. And and what they're, and I mean, just reading the BBC uh, article that is referenced in the ITAM review a little bit more closely, people who have this Sonos system and have a combination of older and newer products are going to have to create effectively uh, two speaker groups so that the newer products can continue to be updated, but the old, old, the old ones that are no longer receiving updates won't. And then you'll still, that will still all work. But that's you know a fair amount of technical uh, configuration that needs that's going to have to happen, reconfiguration, isn't it? But I think the other interesting thing about this is as we move into an IoT world, this resilience issue is going to become more and more important. I mean, it's handled okay with mobile phones. I think. Most people recognise that at some point their mobile phone is no longer going to be supported. A lot of people don't care particularly, which I, which I just think is insane considering what you do on your mobile phone. I'm certainly not going to let myself be using an unsupported mobile phone. But things like fridges or washing machines, which are smart devices, they're connected to the network. The fridge, you know, says, okay, I need some more cheese or milk or whatever. I'm going to order it and, you know, the cheese arrives the following day or within an hour. Does that mean that the fridge is going to stop working when it no longer receives updates? How do you brick your fridge? Do you disconnect the fridge from the IoT network? All of those issues, I think, as a society, we're going to have to start working through, and this is just an example of it. It's, it's that expectation of, of obsolescence. In a mobile phone, no big deal, two years, and, and get a new one. That's how long contracts last for, typically. But um, home entertainment kit, people get attached to it, and... You know, science has been around a long time, so so there's there's um, devices that people have got that you know they're, they're on your home network. They're not really exposed to the internet, perhaps. So there's probably no risk there in terms of security, and you want to carry on using them. Um, you know, um, I've got an Apple TV two version two, I think, which still works with Netflix and so on. So and that's probably eight or nine years old, um, and and that's the expectation. It, it will be the same, you know, uh, I mean, perhaps anyone who's driven an old car with um, sat-nav, built-in sat-nav or, or, or entertainment systems, quite often they drop off and, and, and cease being useful because they haven't taken the right dates or whatever. So it, it's going to be, as, as Kylie said, as we get more and more things connected, this is going to be a, become a, a bigger issue, I think. Things live a lot longer in the, um, yeah. in the user environment. You know, we're not we're not businesses when we get to our own homes. You know, where you think, oh, I need to replace this every three to five years because you know I've written it off on, on my finance books. You know, if you, if you can, if your cooker will work for fifteen years, you're quite happy with your cooker working for fifteen years. The same yeah. as your boiler or any other system in your house. I mean, a lot of the time we pass our technology down onto our kids because we can't afford the new iPhone. We might buy a new iPhone, but we'll give the old iPhone to one of our kids or something. 
Yeah. You know, and I think businesses need to understand that the end user market expects their devices to last until they break, really, rather than being forced to upgrade something. We're, we're not a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that emotional attachment is, is really where this ties in and it's interesting because we compared phones to speakers right and you know the new iphone maybe a thousand dollars us something like that um and, and i'm looking here at google and you know these sonos speakers they range from a couple hundred dollars us to full systems you know ceiling system kits for for 1250 us and and we're talking 10 years of usable life and people are upset that their 10 year old speaker that they might have bought for two three hundred dollars it you know won't work anymore you've had it for 10 years but you'll replace your thousand dollar phone every two mm -hmm. years <laughs> you know um and and i think it, it does it kind of comes down to this weird emotional attachment that, that people have in the consumer market to their 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 devices Right, one of Kylie or, or AJ, somebody mentioned, you know, that that uh, the, the phone is, you know, we'll, we'll upgrade it regularly, right? We're used to this eighteen month, two month, two, uh, two year, uh, maybe three year kind of cycle when it comes to those. But for other things, not so much, right? Televisions, we'll keep them till they break, right? Yeah. Um, apparently, speakers as well, refrigerators, <laughs> boilers. I, 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 I think there's a big change in that because if you, when you look at phones, you are basically, you know, if you look at any of the providers, you know, um, you're basically paying $50, $60 a month or something like that for your phone, and every three years, they offer you more or less a free upgrade, get an upgrade, and, and that's actually what drives people to change their phones every two or three years. You have to you have to pay for your phone, and then you don't have to pay a monthly fee or anything, and your phone just work the same as a speaker or the same as your fridge at home, you would be much more reluctant to go and buy another one every two years at a thousand pounds, you know. You, so we, if we apply this to the enterprise, um, we've talked about 2008, end of life and all this sort of thing, 12 years old, that is. So is, is that going to happen anymore in the future if we've got organisations that, that will potentially switch off your support for you because it's out of date? And will well, force you to move over rather than somebody sweating 2008 for 12 years. See, I don't think people end up purposely sweating assets. It's, I, I think look, a lot of the vendors end up saying, oh, you've got to move, et cetera, et cetera, same as Microsoft, and we'll give you some help. But you know, my answer to Microsoft and has been recently is, well, if you pay for the upgrade and everything else, then we'll quite happily do. Hmm. But when it's going to cost me $12 million to go do that, trying to find $12 million. Plus, I might put it in my plans in three years' time, but then the business changes the moves, or you know, the markets end up getting depleted, or there's a, a bit of a market crash, and all of a sudden that twelve million dollars disappears because I've got other priorities that I now need to go on to. Do you know what I mean? And the system isn't broken, so we don't need to do anything with it. I think that's what ends up with, with a lot of these things. You know, if you've got sixty thousand end user computing devices with Windows Seven on, to move them all to Windows Ten. It's bloody expensive, you know, testing all of those applications, then testing the build, making sure the build's resilient, making sure that you've, you've been pen testing on it and all of that. You're talking millions and millions of dollars to move something that isn't broken yeah. in the first place. Yeah, and thus, that's why things end up getting older outside there in, in the enterprises, not, not because they don't have the money and not because they don't have the will. It's because half the time, both of those don't add up at the same time. Right? They might have the money, but actually they've just upgraded, so they don't need to. Or actually they need to upgrade, and they've told the, the, the market that they're going to save £260 million that year. Well, can't save £260 million if they're going to upgrade on the systems. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there's a, there's a final warning um, for Sonos and, and organisations that operate in this fashion too, and it's to, to have some sort of proper test and dev environment so that they can, you know, they can they can run these, um, you know, switch offs or downgrades or whatever you want to call them, um, in anger in an environment, and they know what's going to happen before they do it. I, I get the feeling that that wasn't given, shall we say, the proper due diligence when the decision was taken. Yeah, end of life. I mean, nobody ever really thinks properly about end of life, do they? No. Shall we move on? Mm-hmm. Yep. I have Elizabeth's letter for this month. Um, how frequently should servers and desktops be analysed 
for installed software to discover new or unauthorised software, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. And perhaps we should add to Elizabeth's letter in how should that change in a cloud environment as well. But generally, how, how often should we be doing inventory and discovery to find out what we're doing and how often it's moving? As a practitioner, I would say instantaneously. <laughs> the hour <laughs> would be fantastic. But it, uh, live, at the, at the, live data. Yeah, live data. Um, but at the bare minimum, I, I prefer daily, right? I, as often as possible, really. You know, um, if you're not scanning your environment, but once every month, right, to, to see what's changed, then you can't necessarily react. And that is not good, right? If you look at some of these, uh, uh, some software such as, you know, IBM's subcapacity, right? IOMT is looking all the time, right? Um, and if you're not scanning your environment with your, your primary SAM tools to see what's going on, what's changing, um, it's going to be difficult to keep up with, with, with your change management processes. It's going to be difficult to understand exactly what your environment looks like. And, and you know, if you have gaps between your, your primary SAM tool and your IOMT and you go and take a quarterly snapshot and, and oh, IOMT. It, there's a big spike here that I had no idea about because I haven't looked at my scanned my environment in the last month or um, uh, aligned my change management and my, my various changes with my actual entitlement uh, uh, situation. Then, then you might be in for some surprises. This is a quick one for you, Pat. Can you remember what IMT's minimum scan or in order to meet the subcapacity is? It every four hours? It's Sunday, yeah, I Sunday so. weather, isn't it? Yeah. It's, if you're contracted to look at your state every four hours, that should be the minimum amount. You know, you look at your contracts, and it will determine how much you have to go scan for that software. That's a great point. It, isn't it also, I, I get the contractual point around ILMT, maybe, maybe that's a separate use case, but isn't it also dependent on your ability to do something about that data when you get it? So yeah, it's all very well getting the data daily to say somebody's installed something rogue, but if you haven't got the power or the policy or the process to be actually do something about it it's just irrelevant isn't it isn't it better doing it monthly or quarterly and then putting a powerful process in place to rectify things first it well then you've got the process then you've, you've already fixed it you know it makes no difference if it's hourly or whether it's monthly if you've got it monthly and you still don't have the process you still have no power to move on yeah and there's a balance to be struck as well because if you do have a highly dynamic estate with constant changes that need to be remediated. If you leave it too long, you're going to end up with too much to be sorted at once and your service desk or whoever needs to fix it up are just going to say, no, that's sorry, sorry we can't do that. So, yeah, you know, you've, you've got to understand your estate and you've got to understand how your how your stakeholders, who are actually going to be the ones doing the work, want to handle this issue as well. And there's also the, um, the, the level of risk that you want to involve in this as yeah. well. So if it's yeah. if it's an odd install here or there, do you throw your toys out of the pram and go to DEFCON 5? Or do you um, sort of set a limit of, right, okay, 50 of that event's happening, that's that's when I roll my sleeves up and get stuck in. Yeah. Depending on the size of the state. You obviously need to account for the maturity of your processes as a couple of years. Um, and also the size of the vendor you're talking about as well. I mean, you know, something like one of the mega vendors like Microsoft Oracle or IBM, you're probably, in a, in a reasonably mature environment, you're probably going to do one check on them a year and that's going to be a renewal time, you know, or true up time. Um, you're not going to do it on a rolling basis and getting that data in and, and, and checking because if your processes are reasonably mature and you've got a handle on changes that are happening in your environments and so on and so forth, it becomes less of a problem. I disagree, um, actually. I, I mean, because I think you need to have this comes back to also to what else are you doing with this data? It's not just it's not just a matter of compliance. It may also no, be I'm, that I'm you have a, a license is. pool, and you and you know to only update your license pool once a year and get a sense of whether you've got unused licenses is is again probably not that's, maximizing that's, value. That's entirely not what I said. <laughs> 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 In a reasonably in a reasonably mature process. I mean, obviously, if you've got um, you know software metering switched on under your tools and metering is flagging up software that's not being used, then obviously you're going to act on that. Aren't you? I'm not saying you don't you completely ignore it. Yeah, we've had a reasonably mature environment, Barry. Well, yeah, I know I know that is the uh, 
that that is the golden prize, isn't it? A reasonably mature environment. But you know, you're not going to do a full check of your entire environment every year. You might look at bits of it as things are flagged up, but you know, one, once a year is is enough to really do a, a thorough check on a mega vendor. And that's uh, just picking up on something that, that, that Danny said earlier as well. Um, I've got to be honest with you, Dan, I'm going to disagree on one point you made. I've never yet seen a contract that specifies how often you've got to scan your environment. Well, that's why I was saying about the ILMT, because in there, it, you know, you could say Passport Vantage and ILMT, that's the contract that actually told you it's every four hours. Um, that's, that's my point, it doesn't. Passport Vantage does set, says nothing about how often you've got to scan. The only point it makes about ILMT is that A, you've got to have it deployed, B, you've got to keep current with the versions and use the latest version. It doesn't say anything about scanning. Let me have a dig out. I've seen something somewhere about every four hours, but... I can't remember where I saw it's, it. It's probably, it's probably in there about how ILMT's default setup, and it's probably in the technical stuff, but um, it's, it's not in passport advantage to the best of my knowledge. What is unauthorised anyway? I mean, surely everyone listening to this podcast has a lockdown environment and change control in the, serve, in the data centre. <laughs> Everything's perfect. There is no thing as unauthorised <laughs> software, right? Absolutely never. <laughs> I suppose much more in the data center, probably much more change control. But yeah, end user state definitely different or pressure than that. It's also very common for change control to be focused on prod, not dev. So you can end up with a nightmare in your development environments because they're not properly controlled. Oh, yeah. That's very common. I think it depends on your uh, maturity and your ability to actually do something about the data once you've got it. Um, I agree completely, Martin. And, and also, I think, the, I think the, not this ISO standard, because they stripped out a lot of the how-to stuff, but the previous one that had a bit more detail said that you should do it quarterly, but that was more from a governance point of view to prove to everyone that you're doing the right job rather than the actual operations. Mm. I think it's horses for courses. And I think if you have a very, you know, just a couple of, of um, deployments of Cognos or something, once a year is probably fine and it's a very stable environment and you're not growing it, you're not doing anything with it, it hardly ever gets touched, once a year probably is fine. If you've got an extremely dynamic estate of Oracle or, you know, SQL servers being spun up and turned down and all the rest of it, then you're going to want something that's a lot more dynamic to match that. And actually, I mean, this point about maturity is a really interesting one because, of course, the more mature you are, the more able you are to do things like define individual standards for individual vendors and applications about how you're going to manage them. So you might actually do that risk assessment that says actually our IBM estate is very stable, we're not doing much with it, we're only going to look at it once a year. But of course, that to get to that level of maturity means that you're actually probably already passed through the some of the, you know, some of the other activities and, and already are thinking about know the answers to this question, if you know what I mean. And you've got, and you've put in place a framework with which to come up with the answers. You know, you, you know the questions. You've got to put a framework in place to come up with the answers. So, it's also a bit circular. Solving this issue requires a degree of maturity, but having that degree of maturity means you probably don't have that question. I think we obviously we also need to agree is the fact is there's no one size fits all answer, is there? Yeah. It's really going to depend on a combination of factors, which I think we've pretty much just covered. Danny, what have, you, what have you found? Well, Brett pointed out, uh, well, he gave us the link for the uh, subcapacity licensing under ILMT, and in order to be able to have subcapacity licensing in ILMT, it must scan every 30 minutes for changes to the CPU environment. Otherwise, yes. if you change that to anything other than 30 minutes, you are not, you have to full capacity your whole environment. And that is contractual, is it? Um, that's the terms on the island T and sort of capacity licensing. So incorporated by reference or something. Yeah. Yeah. And to the other extreme, you could say if you're doing old school Microsoft on the desktop, then you've got 90 days to sort your life out, haven't you? Before you. Yeah. So you could do it once a month and then you've got 30 days to sort it out. It really so. does depend on your environment and your maturity. So, Brett. Absolutely. Brett, as is the custom with this radio show, newcomers need to sing Job of the Week. And yep. just to let you know, Kylie uh, is a, you, what's the formal word? It, cor, 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 
Chorister. Chorister, thank you, thank you. I've sang in choirs, I haven't sang in choirs for the last couple of years, but yeah. So there's a high watermark here, Brett, so <laughs> no pressure, you, uh, need to song, you need to sing Job of the Week, okay? Off you go, after three. One, uh, two, three. Job of the Week. Ooh, a well nice done. little jazz thing going there, I like it. <laughs> what's, what's the score, Kaylee? what's the score? I don't know. I'm not going there. Tens all the way. Ten, 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 ten. Absolutely. The signs are going up. (laughs) So job of the week this week is head of SAM operations uh, for Zurich Insurance. This is out of Dublin. And this looks quite a tasty role. Anyone see this one? I thought this looked really interesting because it's in Dublin, but Zurich, of course, is a Swiss Zurich, company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's a true global role based out of Dublin. Maybe it's to get uh, a little bit cheaper because, as we know, um, you know, Switzerland is well known for its low wages. So That is very true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not unusual to see a central European IT function at a Dublin, though, is it? No, not at all. But the global role out of Dublin I thought was interesting as well. Mm. It it, it does seem, I mean, obviously it's January and new budgets, but there are a lot of jobs around, Mm. a lot of meaty roles around um, popping up on LinkedIn for uh, UK and Ireland in particular, um, I've spotted. So, um, One thing that was also interesting about this job description is they want a bachelor's degree which Barry definitely wouldn't be pleased about. But the no. bachelor's degree could be in business administration, information management, finance, legal, procurement, or any other related field. So every, everything except technology. <laughs> so, so everything apart from media studies and yes. art. <laughs> like that. Yeah, and if you're going to have something that broad, why do you really need a degree as well? So, yes, it's a, it's a really good meeting role and they want lots of experience and three-plus years in direct ownership of SAM service delivery. So this is very much a promotional role for somebody who's already a software asset manager in quite a senior role already. Um, I take it they haven't put any sorts of pay in that, have they? No, they never do on LinkedIn, though. No. Maybe we should just apply, just to find out what that, that level of pay is going to be like because, you know, if you're asking for that type of stuff, you know, someone's being responsible for actually owning and delivering sound for a major organization that then you know they're, they're needing someone that is probably highly skilled uh, and yeah should be paying high I, I give them credit for for putting the years of experience and and often you see these roles and they they, they say these very same things right um you know the, the person's got to have uh the ability to work with all these various groups they have to have all this wonderful understanding of various software publishers and metrics etc 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 and then they go oh and they must have been in a itam programmer or a sam lead for three years period right they need three years of itam experience and, and you go well that's got to be kind of hard to do, <laughs> you know, to, to accomplish all the things you've listed out here and, and have the, the experience and the ability to, to do that with, with a minimum or, or of just three years that you are one quick learner, right? Um, but to say, you know, hey, you need seven years um, developing and implementing asset management with three years of direct ownership, you know, they, they know they want someone highly skilled. So yeah. hopefully yeah. the pay is along the same lines. Yeah, agreed. I think it's quite a tasty role. So you're directing SAM specialists, you're running operations, you're, you're responsible for operations, you're running the P&L by the looks of it. Um, they're looking for multi-language, so knowledge of German, Spanish, Portuguese. So you've probably got reports across Europe in those languages. I don't think you're going to be doing any of the doing, are you? This is a real operations and management role. Yeah. Not, not yeah. more for the UK then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just because our ability to speak more than one language is... <laughs> quite, quite diminished. Yeah. The other thing about this role is that it sounds like you're walking into an existing team. So where are some of the other very senior roles that we've that you might see is actually building out a team? This is walking into a team that already exists and picking up the management of that team. Which is well. actually really good cool because what that shows yeah. is there's a lot of buy-in by the business because yeah. if they already have a team there and they're looking for someone to then take that further, then they already understand the, the importance of sound. 
So at least you're not having to resell the business case each time. You're not the first person on the ground who's now having to try and actually hack his way through the bushes to try and get to that value. You know, they already realize the value and they just need to actually keep on building up on that. So, so head of SAM operations at Zurich posted a week ago, he's already had 40 applicants. I think that will be a, a tasty roll. Search on the ITAM review and you'll find the link to this podcast and in there will be the link to the roll. Martin, I was uh, contacted by somebody from Citrix the other day about the Citrix software asset management role that we discussed in December. So they're still looking if anyone's interested. And I had a chat with him and what's really interesting about that role is that it is very much focused on security and making sure that all systems are up to date and patching. So licensing compliance is is not the prime driver for that Citrix role. It is actually a security driver, which could be really interesting for somebody who has an interest in that area. Trouble is, Kylie. I, trouble is, Kylie. We only have one listener to this podcast, and he's just joined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have a good job. I'm already all these, have a job filling all these roles, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> And that doesn't surprise me that that is that that, that focus at Citrix because, as we know, Citrix um, had a data breach, uh, a pretty serious systems breach um, last year. So, once again, this is um, bolting the stable door after the horse has uh, left the building. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but um, good to see that they're um, seeing the value. Um, I guess uh, I guess TravelX will be next. We won't get onto that until. But that's just on that one. And well, that. and and indeed, Microsoft, of course. Yes. <laughs> Although TravelX has is having a large impact upon other organisations, even as it stands at the moment. Not so much in you know the currency exchange of that, but what's happened to them has has made a lot of board members from lots of different companies. Because I'm hearing it from not just my own, but from various different companies. Uh, that's that's having quite a big impact. Yeah. Website's still down. Yeah. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, look out look. for us in, in, in February on that because uh, I've been tracking it and it's getting bigger. Um, and there's, yeah, there's especially so with ESU support disappearing from two thousand and eight and seven. Yeah, a lot of people are looking at all of this at the moment. Very yeah. focused lens. So jargon buster, like jargon buster, <laughs> jargon buster. So the difference between IT asset disposal and IT asset disposition via the medium of cake. Yes. Via the medium of cake. Um, well, I'm going to not use cake to start off with. <gasps> AJ, you promised. Yeah. You've broken all of the. I'll, I'll use the cake as an example. So, so <laughs> I think this is a. I think this is a. A language question more than anything. And the way I, the way I look at it is that disposal is an outcome of disposition, potentially. It's one of many outcomes out of disposition. So you think about disposition being the process of the end of life of your assets. Um, disposal can be one option. Um, and I think uh, you, you know, disposal to, to a lot of people means throwing in the trash. Um, it's, not, it's got no use, it's done and dusted. No, that, that is now, uh, mentioned that Terry Jones died this week, that is now an X asset, it has ceased to be this left the building. Um, so, Very cute. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so, so disposition, there are many ways that you can just disposition, asset disposition can happen. You know, you can resell it, you can shred it, you can destroy it you can donate it for charity and so on. So there's a whole process around this position. And the way I thought about this was perhaps, bearing in mind that we've just come out of Christmas and we're heading into January, um, certainly in the UK, I think it's a worldwide thing anyway, but in the UK there's lots of people doing becoming vegan for January. So it might be this thing, going back to cake, of you've got your Christmas cake left over. Now, for anyone who doesn't have English Christmas cake, there's lots of alcohol in it. It generally doesn't go stale. You're, you can still be eating at Easter. I've certainly been eating Christmas cake at Easter. It's kind of an inert thing. You don't really want to throw away that really rich, delicious Christmas cake that's full of eggs and everything else because you've gone vegan. So you give it to somebody else who isn't vegan and they enjoy your Christmas cake. Um, so that's disposition. You've disposition, 
disposed of it to somebody else rather than chucked it in the bin, which is disposed. Barry, please come back. Yeah. All is forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> I think it made perfect sense. And, 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 you know, it, it really, it's a weird way to describe it, but that, I, I, I do get it, right? For, so, from my perspective, disposition is is all the, if you will, the accounting side, the 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 ecological and environmental perspective of disposing or dispositioning of an IT asset, getting rid of or removing it from your world, your environment. Well, disposal is the physical act of just chucking it, getting rid of the thing. It's gone. It's finally gone. And get it out of my sight. Um, no longer on my books. Exactly. Right. So, so while, while your Christmas cake, uh, analogy is, is different. Um, it does make, it does make a little bit of sense. And, and, and in the U S I have, you know, it, it's been a, a dry January. So giving up alcohol is, is kind of the, a thing for a lot of people. Um, as I mentioned previously, I have six kids. There was no giving up alcohol, um, for January, but, um, you know, uh, I definitely understand, uh, that the giving up meat for a month, um, I don't know if that would go down so well in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. But it, don't forget, it's not just meat. It's just any meat products and milk and eggs yeah. and everything else. Uh, yeah. The starvation is not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think the other thing from a hardware asset management perspective, I always stressed that the hardware end of life is not just about the physical disposal of a piece of equipment. It's absolutely, as you say, you stop managing it. It's no longer it's no longer an asset belonging to your organisation. So, in fact, if a piece of equipment is lost or stolen, then that's also you also need to put it through the asset disposal disposition, disposal yeah. cycle to make sure that you record the fact that the asset was lost or stolen, and therefore it is no longer being managed by your organisation. It's no longer owned by your organisation. Um, so it is, and it is a blend of accounting as well, because of course, once an asset is no longer managed or owned by your organisation, you need to inform your finance organisation so that they can take it off the fixed asset register as well. And then, of course, there's all the environmental issues around making sure that your disposition process uh, is aligned to environmental laws in your in your country or in your jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Which is, which is why I think Policies a, lot of the, of your organization. a lot of the ITAD partners want to use disposition rather than disposal because disposal should be the last, last... Yeah, the, the last resort. Last resort, yeah. yeah, yeah. Disposal, yeah. Should, disposal should be the last resort of disposition and should be avoided if at all possible. Yeah. yeah. And of course, disposition also covers the software, whether you put it onto shelfware or stuff like that and you just decide, you know what, I'm just going to mothball it. I might use it in two years' time. Right, that was a radio show. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. And if anyone's listening, wants to um, chat to us, wants to join the podcast, wants to send us a note, please email support at itassetmanagement.net and we're very pleased to answer your questions or look at your jargon busters or weird analogies with cake. With that, thank you, guys, and see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I go to bye bye.